So when I was nine years old, my dad picked me up from a baseball game, a little league game, and it was raining outside. We were driving home. It was very rainy, and we got hit by a car. Unexpected, shocking, but no one was hurt. It was basically a fender bender, not the not the craziest deal. And my dad got out of the car. The guy who hit us got out of the car. There was a bit of a confrontational moment. You know, obviously, cars colliding is, is stressful. And I remember this moment because in this moment, it was the first time in my life that I saw my dad nervous. Now, I was a kid. I was nine years old. So I don't, I have no idea what was going on in my dad's head. Could have been a lot of things. Truthfully, though, my dad is kind of a nervous person. So maybe it actually had nothing to do with this confrontational moment with another man. Maybe it's just his behavior. But for my, from my nine year old lens, I looked at him and I changed my view of him. Like in that moment, he, he no longer was this omnipotent figure that most young children see their parents as. I saw him as human for the first time. And it made me feel very uncomfortable because I do think on some subconscious level, my dog brain was essentially like, Oh shit, we're, I'm not actually safe. This, this creature that, I mean, this other person, you know, if you caught my dog brain episode, I, I flushed out how, you know, our dog brain that's within ourselves, our palomalian limbic system, needs to feel safe through our social hierarchy, right? That's why literal dogs always want to know who the pack alpha is, right? So in my case, my pack alpha, my father, was showing weakness for the first time. He was a human being. But for, for my child lens, it kind of changed my view of him, right? And I think it triggered various insecurities that we could say is like the birth of my father wound, if you will. I do look at this time as kind of a kind of the time where my relationship with my dad first starts to deteriorate, maybe because of moments like this. Partly also, you know, I had various insecurities as a young man and I did blame them on my father. I saw my dad was nervous. I was nervous. I took out my anger on him, perhaps unfairly. Um, but I also noticed something deeper, more than more than just my relationship with my literal dad. It was like I separated on some subconscious level from the feeling of connection to an omnipotent, we could, what we would call the Godhead in psychology, this, this male presence that has everything handled for me, right? Who takes care of me, who keeps me safe, who gives me guidance, like where I can put full trust in him in the way that most monotheistic religions put full trust in God the Father. So I've noticed this, you know, I, I, I've done a lot of episodes on, on the father wound and, and male role models and things. But only recently I have been thinking about a different stage in the monomyth, in Joseph Campbell's monomyth, known as atonement with the father, where it's not about the separation part, but it's actually about the reconciliation, which whether it has to do with your literal father or not, although it, it tends to be represented by your relationship with your primary role model, this is the moment where you get to put yourself back together. And as a new father myself, I think this is what has triggered it in me. Like my daughter's, uh, it's been about a year since I've been a dad. My daughter turns uh, a year old in a few weeks. I have noticed, I mean, one, what every new parent says, which is you become a parent, you start to identify with your actual parents, you empathize with them more, forgive them, all of that stuff. But also kind of a reconnection to a part of myself, a part of my psyche, perhaps a part of my masculinity that I have not touched or haven't, I mean, I don't even think have come close to since being a kid who looked at, who looked up to dad. So 
This stage in Joseph Campbell's monomyth, what we commonly refer to as the hero's journey, atonement with the father is the stage in the psychological journey where one reconciles with the Godhead, with their omnipotent father figure, which, again, can be represented by your dad. But honestly, if you're an adult man, your dad is probably an old man and you're probably not seeing him that way. But we see this in our mythologies, right? Some of the most heavy-handed, you can look at Star Wars, you know, the original episodes of Star Wars was basically like a, you know, Luke's hero's journey. I mean, obviously, Star Wars very heavy-handedly followed the, the monomyth. You know, in episode one, he's viewing Darth Vader as this evil, omnipotent force, doesn't know as his father. Uh, I mean, episode four, the second, the next episode, he confronts Darth Vader and he finds out, you know, the, the iconic line, Luke, I am your father. And that causes all sorts of anguish because he has to recognize that this thing he's hated. I mean, it's very, it represents boy psychology a lot. Like this thing he's hated for an entire episode of episode four turns out to be his, where he comes from, which I think is a deep recognition that men at a certain level of maturity have to come to grips with. And then finally, at the end, the, you know, episode six, they reconcile. They have the, the literal battle. They fight each other. They almost kill each other. They make up in that tear jerky, uh, father son moments. But I do think this represents something very deep and critical for men. Whereas there is a natural separation from your dad. And in fact, in the episode on the five stages of the male psyche, which was my personal favorite episode of the podcast last year, I'll put a link in the show notes if you didn't catch it. I do think rebellion is necessary, right? Like you have to rise up against the father, whether it means your literal father or the father within you, in order to create your own unique identity, right? If you stay within your father's house forever, you stay as a boy forever, regardless of your age. But at some point, you have to come back. At some point, you have to reintegrate the piece that you were born with, the masculinity that was given to you through what Campbell would call your primary father, and the identity that you sought out and created for yourself, which is what Campbell would call the secondary father. So in this episode, we're going to talk about this is a return to mythology, which I haven't spoken about too much. Obviously, we're going to speak about Jungian archetypes and all that fun stuff. We're going to start with some biological or the evolutionary origins of all this stuff to make sure we don't go into a mystical land. I'm going to speak about Campbell's ideas of the primary secondary father which I've done a whole episode on in the past, but we're going to take it a step further because I actually stopped with the secondary father idea in that episode a few a uh, few years ago and then go into actual atonement. Like what is reconciliation between nature's masculinity and nurture's masculinity, both of which is within you. One quick announcement. Uh, if you're on my Substack, you probably got this email already, but um, I'm doing my Mask and Archetype Challenge live starting this Sunday, February 5th. It's what I did when I first launched the program in 2018. It's, I think it's a great program. I actually have wanted to do it again myself. It's a 20 day, 21 day program to get in touch with what we would call your masculine archetype, your testosterone driven virtues that are dormant within you. So we're doing a, a group. I think there's about 20 of us in the group right now starting on Sunday. So if you want to join that, if you want to join the group calls, sign up before Sunday at rwando.com slash archetype. All things within our psyche, what Jung would call archetypes, what we can more commonly refer to as emotional patterns, your sense of whatever, confidence, courage, abstractions like masculinity, all of these modes of behavior have an evolutionary origin. Just a little other plug, uh, my buddy Francis, who uh, I share my office with, we've been starting this like kind of imp uh, informal book club where we're reading a book called Moral Origins, which is really this, this idea 
Um, so if you want to check that out, that's also going to be a playlist on my YouTube. It's also going to be on Substack. We're breaking down more of the anthropological side of this stuff. But simply what is relevant to us, with atonement to the Father, it comes from our pre-civilization ancestors where across cultures, this was pretty universal and therefore we can say it was natural or archetypal, if you will. When a boy reached a certain age, somewhere between age seven-ish and puberty, he'd be taken from his mother, he'd be taken from the land of women where he and the other kids, regardless of their gender, would all be just treated as children. And that was their social role. The young boy would be taken from the land of women by his father and brought into the land of men through a rite of passage. And then when he came back, regardless of his age, he, his social role was no longer that of a boy. And now he was a man. I mean, this is what the bar mitzvah is, right? Even though you know, again, I, I bring this up every time I bring up rites of passage and bar mitzvahs. No family seriously treats their bar mitzvah 13 year old as a man, even though you say that. But there was a time in human history, say in, in Jewish history, where a boy had his bar mitzvah and he actually was treated as a man. Like he would start to get adult man responsibilities. He would, you know, his uh, standard of conduct would be that of a man and not of a boy anymore. <clears throat> And this, of course, is represented in various, uh, in film. And I'm actually going to, this is a, maybe an odd uh, reference for uh, a podcast on masculinity, but uh, in the, the Disney movie Bambi, that movie is actually a little bit about leaving his mother harshly. If you didn't see the movie, his Bambi's mother dies to the point where, you know, most people who haven't seen the film are actually unsure if Bambi's a boy or a girl because Bambi seems so feminine, but Bambi is a boy. And obviously the name Bambi sounds pretty feminine, but there's that, again, iconic line. I think it's in the end of the movie. I haven't seen it in a long time, obviously, uh, where his father just shows up, right? Like the movie's like his mother gets shot by a hunter. He's like putting himself back together. It's kind of like an extended leaving the mother, like mother wound type of thing. And then his father shows up. He's a stag. He's king of the forest and says, I will raise the boy and teach him the ways of the forest. And then it's implied that after the film, Bambi becomes a man, right? Um this is atonement to the father. This is like a peaceful reconciliation with leaving the comforts of mother, the comforts represented by the archetypal mother, and brought to the tough love of the father where father loves you, but he's not going to let you slack because he knows in the harsh world, if he raises you to be weak, that's the worst thing he can do for you. So even though our society, modern civilization, doesn't have any of this, right? We don't have rites of passage, you know. The roles that are called traditional gender roles don't really have, a, for the most part, don't really have a survival basis the way they did for our pre-civilization ancestors. But these emotions are still within us, right? These, these things still drive us, right? As far as, you know, I mean, anything from daddy issues to who we're interested in, in like, in public figures, be it like a child worshiping a certain basketball player he likes or, or whatever, right? All of these drives come from these evolutionary origins. And I was speaking about this uh, on a more, you know, I was speaking about this with my buddy Mishka, who's been on the podcast a few times. <clears throat> I don't want to tell too much of his story because he's going to come on maybe in a month and, and tell it, but he's in the middle of a feminine cleanse right now, which is, you know, he realized he had certain behaviors in, you know, invalidation seeking with women. He wanted to free himself from them. And so he's taking a break from women. He's, and specifically it's for him, it's, you know, he's pretty good with women. So it's not about like, uh, you know, changing how he relates necessarily. I mean, I don't want to speak for him, but he's identified that he seeks the feminine for certain levels of comfort that he doesn't want to be reliant on. 
So he and I were speaking about that. He's taken, you know, I think a month of no dating, et cetera. Um, but then we were talking about like his lifestyle stuff. And I was pointing out that he did have certain comforts in his life. And even though they weren't women, there were, it kind of was almost still the same thing as the archetypal mother. Like he was seeking certain things that made him feel good and feel cozy and maybe feel good about himself and validated and comforted as most of us, you know, seek when we're feeling not so great. And I was suggesting to him is like, if you, you know, if you really want to get the most out of this cleanse, maybe you shouldn't seek the metaphorical mother and you should seek the metaphorical father. Like, what does it mean to seek daddy instead of mommy? You know, obviously we're speaking about, you know, metaphorically, of course, right? So like, what does that mean? So instead of maybe doing something that feels good or feels comforting, you do an ice bath. Like instead of a hot shower or a hot bath that makes you feel relaxed, that kind of feels like archetypal mother energy, you, d- you dump in a cold plunge, right? It's a different kind of thing that takes you out of your problems. It takes you out of your your worries, right? It's like, you know, it's kind of like uh, you go to dad and you're complaining and he smacks you in the face. Not that I think that, not that that's what I would do as a father, but, you know, you know that kind of energy of like, where well, I'm not going to let you wallow in this, right? I'm not going to, you know, hold you to my skirt. I'm going to give you something hard to do and that's going to fix you. That's going to help you. And Mishka and I, you know, he'll come on in the podcast and we'll talk about his experience more, but we were kind of brainstorming, like, what are these kinds of things, right? Like ice instead of hot showers, um, you know, from a plant perspective, tobacco instead of weed. Not, not that I'm a proponent of tobacco, but there are a lot of studies coming out about how tobacco raises testosterone, which I just think is interesting. Obviously, I wouldn't suggest smoking tobacco for the net health benefits, but you know, tobacco obviously has been associated with men, cigars and whatnot. And I actually have been starting smoking a pipe occasionally uh, since becoming a dad. It actually feels a lot better than smoking weed, which does feel like kind of getting a little bit too loose. And we do know also that cannabis does feminize you both uh, in terms of behavior and biologically. Um, and then other things, right? Like what is the thing that the benevolent father who loves you, but is also holding you to a standard of strength, what would he do for you? which is like an internal inquiry when it comes to atonement. So now let's go into the primary and secondary father idea, because this is a really critical idea from Joseph Campbell that obviously is very pertinent to men, whereas there is the imprint of masculinity you've been given that you have no choice over, right? This is, the, this is your primary father. This is your biological dad and or your, the, the men who raised you, who you did not get to choose, right? So if you're raised by your biological father, that's that's him, right? He represents it. But archetypally, it could be spread out over many men, right? Maybe you had a stepdad, maybe an uncle was very present in your life, grandpa, whatever. But you didn't choose them, right? They just showed up in your life or they were there when you were born or their, their DNA is within you. And this is where you got your first imprints of nature and early nurture for being a man, whether you like it or not. I'm sure there's positive traits and negative traits that came with that. And... The secondary father is the one you didn't choose. We're talking about that next. So in antiquity, which I'll define as early civilization, where society and culture was still close enough to nature, like close enough to that older tribal society where a lot of the, the cultural norms reflected that, as we can see in, in most ancient civilizations. In antiquity, especially in an area, in a, in a society where there was danger and therefore men had to be strong, you know. You think of, you know, think of anywhere where there was an honor culture, where there wasn't a state providing the security for everyone. Men were often introduced by who their father was. 
if you catch my uh, History of Man podcast, I just released an episode on the Peloponnesian War, so I've read a lot of Greek history recently. And if you read any of the Greek historians, Thucydides, Herodotus, Xenophon, anytime they're introducing a new leader, a new significant man, they always mention who his father was. Like, this is Chimen, son of Miltiades, who did this and this at Marathon. And, you know, it's, it's, it's to give credibility to the, the guy who you don't, you don't know. Because in, in a, in a society back then, you can't just look someone up online, right? So if a new man is on the scene, he's too young to have done any heroic feats to be known to have his own reputation. In the beginning, it's his father's reputation that kind of seeds his place in society. It's like he relies on like, oh, I'm whatever, son of Jochi. And like, maybe you don't know who this guy is, but you meet him on the on the roads in the Asian steppes and you're riding a horse and this young warrior comes along and he says, oh, I'm so-and-so son of Jochi. It's like, well, I never heard of you, but I've heard of your father. He's an honorable warlord. Okay, assuming that you're the right person, okay, we can travel together because I know you're not going to rob me in my sleep. I know if shit goes down, I can count on you because I, I know what your father's reputation is. <laughs> and you even see this in, um, mytho- you know, in fiction, in fantasy, right? Uh, you know, Lord of the Rings, Game of Thrones, J.R.R. Tolkien and George R.R. Martin obviously read a lot of history, which is one thing that's so interesting about their fantasy world. It's like it, it, it has the, the realism of, uh, even, even though it's a fantasy world, the relationships are very real because there are a lot of them are based on history. And, you know, in, in Lord of the Rings, you know, when Aragorn is introduced or when he introduces himself, when he's like hiding as a ranger, he says, I am Aragorn, son of Arathorn, son of Isildur, right? He's pointing to his lineage as his credibility because no one knows who he is. In that sense, the father's reputation provides the son's spiritual perimeter in the sense that, you know, if someone wants to know what this young man is about, they just assume he's taken on the intangible qualities of his father. The second piece, though, is the material perimeter, right? The reason why people's last names come from their father in almost pretty much every culture, except maybe in the modern, more liberal settings, is your surname denotes who has your back, right? If you are, you know, and this is why so many surnames literally are who your father is, like Leif Erikson. Erikson means son of Eric, Eric the Red. So you meet Leif Erikson, but you've heard of his father. It's like, okay, he must be cool too. I'm going to follow him. But also, if I mess with Leif Erikson, I have to answer to the war band of Eric the Red. It gives you that, that backing. And obviously, not all last names literally say who your father is, although many European last names. A lot of the suffixes say in Slavic names like Vich means son of Milosevic, son of Milo, etc. Whatever your last name is, the origin, whether it's your clan or your caste or um, your profession, your family's profession, it represents who has got your back if someone were to mess with you, right? And this is why the symbolism of a woman marrying a man and taking his family name, it used to really mean something, right? Because it meant that a young woman was going from the perimeter of her father, the house of her father, to the house of her husband. So if Mary Johnson became Mary Hatfield, if someone messes with Mary, now they have to answer to Mr. Hatfield. That's kind of... You know, obviously feminists have turned this into like it being like a property, which I don't think was the initial intention because this cultural norm became a thing because people needed security. In our modern day states, we, security needs, personal security is very low, which is why truthfully, you know, these kind of what we call patriarchal norms maybe aren't that necessary anymore, but they have real roots. This is why the primary father was so critical 
in most and both in, in pre-civilization and early civilization. And even though it's becoming less and less important in our modern day states, you know, none of us carry around weapons. None of us need, you know, none of us, it doesn't matter what your father's reputation is anymore. Like every generation is kind of separate from each other as far as uh, societal reputation goes. These emotions are still within us, right? Because we evolve for a different world. Now, the secondary father. Secondary father is the male role model or role models you've chosen on your own, right? The primary is the one that you were given. The secondary father is the one that you've chosen in a sense to complete your unique identity. You know, I mentioned this earlier and I talked about it in the five stages of the male psyche episode, but this is a critical stage and it's represented in a lot of mythologies through rebellion and in many people's real lives. You know, if you were an angsty teenager and you fought with your dad, maybe for reasons that you look back on, it was like, well, that was kind of silly of both of us to be mad about. Maybe the, the issues were silly or maybe they weren't, you know, or maybe the things you were angry about were very legitimate. But this stage of somehow rising up against the father, maybe not your literal father, but often is represented this way, is a very critical stage, right? Because again, I mentioned this, but a man who doesn't in some way separate himself from the father, as seen in the prodigal son parable in the Bible, he never creates his own identity. He stays within the house of his father. And I, I've, I've mentioned this a few in a few episodes, but I have a few friends who have really awesome dads. Like I have a few friends who like their dads are like kind of famous and super well-known and super alpha and super awesome and, and great guys. And their sons who are, are my age, they're in their 30s, still worship their dad to the degree that they've never left their father's shadow. And I can see that that almost has as negative an effect as having a father who wasn't strong, right? It's like they never really found themselves, unfortunately. Uh, so this re rebellion is necessary. And it's actually one of the exercises in my Masculine Archetype Challenge, which is to inventory in yourself, what are the things or the, the types of men you've been drawn to or types of activities even you've been drawn to inexplicably, right? Like it's one thing to love baseball because your dad loved baseball and your neighbors love baseball and all the guys, you know, that's, that we can say, okay, that was taken from your environment or you know, your religious beliefs or whatever. Like if it's, it's the same thing as your environment, then probably you got it from your environment, right? Like most of us aren't that independent in our thought. But if you have certain interests or proclivities or beliefs or ideas that seem to have come from nowhere, like, you know, maybe they're even opposite what your parents or your, your upbringing was into, that I think is very interesting because we could almost say like, one, this is like your unique self that didn't come from nurture. But I also believe that when it comes to like, say, male role models that one seeks, it, it shows what you've been, what you've been lacking. It's like it, it, the secondary father represents kind of a correction, right? So, <clears throat> you know, obviously Andrew Tate is in the news a lot. People have opinions. He's, he's very polarizing. I have my own opinions, of course, but simply the fact that he's become so popular lately, especially with young men, points to how collectively men, say, of Generation Z have been lacking what he's giving, right? The, you know, the, the brashness, the, you know, all, all the stuff, the money, the sex, the things that the, the, the unapologetic things that he says, regardless of what we think of him, it does demonstrate, his popularity demonstrates that this has been lacking in many men, right? That's why they seek him as a secondary father, essentially, which, you know, not to say that people are necessarily looking at him as a father figure or, you know, the people that you listen to or are drawn to, 
not that you're looking at them as daddy, but you are looking at them as a male role model to maybe complete something or to absorb a trait that you, you consciously or subconsciously feel you're lacking in. And I think specifically with young men, you know, as seen with Andrew Tate, but also with, uh, you know, every generation, it's pretty common that teenage boys are drawn to what we could call dark masculine archetypes, right? That Tony Montana's, you know, organized crime becomes very interesting or, or gang behavior becomes very interesting when you're a pubescent male and like you suddenly have this surge of testosterone and you're somehow separating from your primary upbringing and you're seeking strong male role models who complete you. In fact, the, the, I mean, this is often pointed out with, uh, with gang, uh, gang membership that, it's fatherless boys that are most drawn to that, right? Because they're missing an, an alpha male in their home tribe. So they, they join this pack of alphas, seeming alphas or, or truly alphas in a gang. Um, you know, Tyler Durden is another example in Fight Club, et cetera. And, and I think, you know, these unconscious drives represent a correction. So if you're on my Substack, you may have seen, I, I reposted an, an article on sexual archetypes called The Devils Inside of Us. And my, one of my arguments in that, in that article is that the same thing with our sexual desires, right? Like when you have like this inexplicable sexual desire, very often it's a correction against something in your upbringing. So one example is uh, like racial stuff, like jungle fever, for instance. Um, the trope with that is that it is, you know, is a popular term in the seventies that it was, uh, specifically m- white men who were either racist themselves or raised in a racist culture that seemed to fetishize black women's sexuality, right? Why is that? Because their culture is saying, okay, don't look at this type of woman. It's not good for you. Whereas their nature is like, what are you talking about? A a beautiful, fertile woman is a beautiful, fertile woman. So this fetish comes in to correct the fact they're putting, pushing it away. It's essentially what you resist persists unconsciously, right? Like you try not to think of something, but your unconscious wants you to think of some of that thing. Your unconscious wants you to procreate. Your unconscious wants you to be a complete male that integrates all the different traits. If you, for whatever reason, you've been pushing something away, this, the secondary father interest or these inexplicable drives pull you in. Another example, another, you know, obvious example is like the whole trope about like, the homophobic politician who then comes out with some scandal of him, like having sex with a boy or something. Right. And very often the cultural narrative, the common narrative is like, Oh, you know, this person, he was secretly, he was a closet gay and he, he wasn't right with it. So, you know, um, he, he became homophobic publicly. I actually think it's, I think the potentially the, the causality is reversed where it is that uh, this person learns to hate something so hard and so, you know, unnecessarily that his unconscious, which doesn't have any, you know, doesn't have any reason to hate things, comes in to like undo the hatred with, with sexual desire. So I actually think in some ways homophobics turn themselves gay or turn themselves interested in that kind of stuff because they're fighting it so hard. Like what you resist persists, right? Like your, your unconscious doesn't discriminate against things that are, that think the things, right? It's just, it just is. So the secondary father, again, these unconscious drives, you know, they represent a, co- a correction. I think looking at this is a very interesting exercise. Like in myself, I've noticed uh, my main inexplicable interest that has lasted my whole life has been an obsession with combat sports, which doesn't make sense because 
My parents are, are kind of hate that stuff. Um, nobody I grew up around was into boxing or anything, but for some reason, even as a four-year-old, like the first time I saw boxing, I was obsessed with it. And looking backwards at connecting dots, it's like, well, my dad is a super pacifist. Like he's a vegetarian. He's a true Buddhist. Like he really believes, he really lives by like the precepts of like, like he won't kill a bug kind of thing, which is nothing wrong with that. And I actually, as an older, as a father now, I do appreciate his gentleness more. But something in my unconscious was like, wait a minute, we need to integrate aggression also. So I kind of became obsessed with it, I think, right? A little bit of self-analysis. So the secondary father completes your identity, but you can't stop there. And actually, in the previous episode I did specifically on the secondary father, I think I stopped there because that is part of the stage, right? In the monomyth, it's the meeting of the mentor. It's like meeting Obi-Wan, who teaches you the Jedi tricks that you wanted to learn, but your father wasn't around to teach you because your father's Darth Vader. Or, or whomever, right? Whomever the mentor is, there is still another stage because if you stop here, then these parts of yourself, these parts of your masculinity, you can say, are still at odds, right? There's the the good side from Obi Wan, the light side, but your, the darkness that your that your father. Actually, a fun fun fact I learned recently: the word uh, for father in Dutch. My wife is Dutch, so I'm learning random words. Is Vader? Is Vader? Like literally in Dutch, Darth. Vader is Darth Father, which, again, very heavy-handed uh, by George Lucas. But <clears throat> essentially, if you, don't, if you don't have this moment, this next stage of atonement with the Father, and this is why it's later in the monomyth, is that you end up having this inner turmoil. And you see this, and I've seen this a lot in men who maybe uh, sought the opposite of their father because they didn't like their dad. Maybe their dad was an angry alcoholic or... or, or uh, hyper-dominant in a, in a totally unempathic way. So they grew up with nice guy syndrome, right? They don't want to be harsh to women the way their father was. So they go through life totally repressing all of their dominance and aggression and assertiveness, and they end up as impotent guys. Or the other way around. Maybe your dad was a pacifist and you walk around with a chip on your shoulder. Your dad was one way. And it's like, maybe you've sought this completion, but you haven't integrated it. So there's still this inner turmoil. Hence, the atonement is so uh, so important because... You know, if your primary father is your thesis, secondary father is the antithesis, you do need to synthesize at some point, which is why atonement, the atonement with the father is related to apotheosis, essentially becoming a god yourself in the sense of seeing your dad as a god, you become the father as well. And I do think it's a completion. It's a completion that obviously I'm, I'm going through now as a, as a young father, although I think it applies to all men, especially if you've gone past the phase of, say, the rebellion. Because, and this is represented in um, films like, I mean, <laughs> The Lion King. I mean, Dis- I'm thinking Disney because I downloaded a bunch of Disney movies to watch uh, with my kid. But in The Lion King, when and when Simba speaks to his father in the sky and Rafiki says, your father lives in you, this is one of the realizations, right? This is why it happens later in the movie, right before the final battle. It's like, this is where the hero gets his power of synthesizing his primary father elements and his secondary father elements. Because as Rafiki said, whether you like it or not, your primary father is in you. Your biological dad's DNA, half of your DNA came from him, right? So a lot of your physical traits and behavioral characteristics, whether you like it or not, whether you like him or not, you have in common with him. Like, is it to say it's yours that come from him or it's his that he gave to you? Or in really, you know, all of those traits, I mean, obviously your DNA, but a lot of the traits that come with it, even, even traits passed on uh, through nurture, you know, they come from a whole lineage of, you know, ancestors going way further back than you can, you can imagine. So 
I think is natural and understandable that a teenager who's dealing with shit and realizes he's got this complex, maybe from his dad, you know, you have your dad was this way. So now you're this way and you blame him for it. Well, he got it from somewhere too. He got it from maybe his grandfather or his upbringing. And it goes all the way back. And I think this is part of the maturity of recognizing that a lot of who you are, especially your masculinity is impersonal, right? It, it belongs to your family more than it belongs to you. It, it belongs to your lineage, if you, if you will. So can you blame any node? Can you blame any one person in the chain? Well, maybe, maybe if they made it worse, right? Maybe if they blew the family fortune after inheriting, and I mean that like metaphorically, they inherited a bunch of positive traits and they didn't pass them on. Okay, maybe, but chances are, you know, uh, you unless, unless your, your, your dad or your parents really fucked up what their, what your grandparents gave them, you know, in terms of traits, but maybe also maybe money as well. Really, it belongs to no one, right? You know, your masculinity is not really yours. In fact, most of your traits are not necessarily yours. You might seek out certain things as one node in this chain through your contributions by bringing in elements from your personal secondary father, but a lot of it comes from somewhere else. And I think this recognition provides a lot of peace, at least it does in me. And, you know, every new father says this, but the more, you know, as I have identified with more with the father role, it's it's impossible not to forgive my dad for all the shit that I blamed him for because I'm like, well, I'm dealing with it too, right? He didn't mean to pass on insecurities to me. He just did. And even though, you know, it's one thing to just believe in the idea, the spiritual cliche of forgiveness is another thing to not be able to not feel forgiveness because you're experiencing it too. So I, I have found that recognizing my place in the chain very simply is part of the atonement. And I just recorded an episode with my buddy Noel Free on ancestral wounds in kind of a different context. He was speaking about like certain behavioral patterns that, you know, him and his siblings got from his parents and their parents got from him. And he was, he's kind of the person in his family who's like the most conscious, if you will. And he's kind of fixed the problem. He's like fixed the link. He was the one, he was the link that kind of fixed their social dynamics in a sense. It's a good episode. You could check it out uh, maybe in a couple of weeks. It'll be out. Um, but this kind of recognition can't not give you a sense of peace, right? Um, and what this really is, I mean, part of this also, could, you know, part of this could be making peace with your literal dad, especially if you've had an issue with your primary father, your primary male role models. I do think that comes with it. And as I've integrated this within myself, I've noticed that my relationship with my dad has gotten better. But what I think is more pertinent than, you know, just that is the connection to the father, father figure, the, the father archetype or the Godhead within yourself. Because that initial moment that I was speaking about, that I, in my memory, at least that nine year old moment where I saw my dad kind of get dominated and I felt kind of, the, you know, I felt this disappointment and these dog brain fears and this separation. At some point, you want to reconnect with that, right? I, I think the rebellion, the separation is important, but at some point you come home as represented by the prodigal son story in the Bible, right? The, the young son doesn't want to take over the family business. He says, fuck off, dad. He goes off into the wilderness trying to make it on his own. He fails. Then he comes back to his father's home and he's celebrated, which is a kind of a confusing story for many of us because there's another son who stayed, who was like the good boy. He stayed and he's not celebrated. And he's like, well, I was the one who stayed. And the lesson, at least the, the one that I've taken or 
believe to be a useful interpretation is that the prodigal son was celebrated because he actually left and he chose to came back, come back, right? He didn't stay out of fear. He didn't stay out of obligation. He did his own thing. And of his own volition, he came back. And I think this, this represents something very important within us because while, again, your relationship with your dad can represent this thing in you, and I do think, you know, another exercise in my archetype challenge is what I call relationship mapping, where you recognize where your significant relation, what your significant relationships might represent in your own psyche. So maybe your dad represents your relationship to money and your ex-girlfriend represents like really being vulnerable and these things have kind of stuck. And in some ways you can, by working on the external relationship, you can work your internal relationship. I do think there is a high correlation there. Even if your father's not around, or even if you never really had an issue with your literal father, this reintegration, this atonement with the Godhead, I think is relevant to everyone. Because if we look at it from a spiritual lens for a moment, I do think this is one of the reasons why monotheistic religions really became a thing, right? Because especially, and and they weren't a thing pre-civilization, uh, pre-civilization religions tended to be a little bit more matriarchal or egalitarian or, or polytheistic where there's many gods. But I think specifically when society evolved and became more defined, the hierarchies of society became more defined specifically for the men who were in charge of things, whether they were in charge, head of a state or head of a family or had to protect their, their crop or something. It's these men specifically, men we can call the perimeter setters or, you know, loosely call the alphas who re, like this idea of God, the father in the sky became really appealing. And I am, you know, inputting my own experience because I have noticed as I've become a father, this idea, you know, I was raised Catholic, but I, I rejected it at a young age. This idea of like a God in the sky who I can always count on who like can give me guidance so I could give full trust in as I provide that for my children. That seems really appealing. Honestly, for the first time in my life, it was like, yeah, it would be cool to have a, 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 a God, like a father above me who can tell me how to father everyone else. Right. And I do think this is part of why those religious memes became so popular. And as they spread, I'm actually going to be doing a whole series on monotheism on the history of man podcast, probably later this year, because I have a lot more books to read on it. <clears throat> But essentially, the takeaway here for atonement in yourself is to recognize or to even believe, right? Even if you're not, you know, obviously I'm not pushing any religion, but to choose to believe or choose to perceive something that you can treat as a father that's bigger than you. In the same way that when you were a little boy, you looked at your primary male role model in some way as omnipotent, right? This is this is the root of the, this is the evolutionary root of the idea of the Godhead, right? There is a father who can handle all the shit, right? He can give you advice, he can keep you safe, he can provide all those things and seeking something like that, right? So if you're religious, you can, you can seek that, right? But if not, and it is, you know, you kind of have to create your own religion in a sense of like, Choosing abstract values or choosing a morality or choosing some code that you're going to rely on in place of a literal man telling you what to do, right? I mean, this is, this is why so many things, whether it's 12 step recovery or the Freemasons, like they all require someone to believe in a higher power because it gives people, specifically men who are in charge of shit, it gives them a sense of security and peace, which allows them to be the perimeter setter for others. It allows you to be a better alpha, if you will, because then you're not on your own, right? People, I mean, this is dog brain stuff. And I think this is more true for males across the animal kingdom, including hum humans, is that 
we don't want to be at the top of the hierarchy. We want to be in a hierarchy and obviously males compete for highest status, but to be at the very top is very stressful, right? It's actually, it feels better to know what's above you and what's below you, which is why, you know, dogs who only have a dog brain uh, or don't have a rational brain, the first thing they do, especially male dogs when they meet is immediately determine the order. Once they know the order, they have peace. And I spoke about this more on the dog brain episode, but, uh, this gives us a sense of security and peace that allows us to provide for others because otherwise you're at the top of the perimeter and there's nothing above you. And it becomes very, it becomes, there's a, there's like on a primal mammalian level, it gives you a sense of unease, which is why, and I bring this up, this idea up all the time because I think it's so like, uh, well, such a vivid image of that. There's the trope of the high power CEO or the high power finance guy who's like super alpha in charge of everything, you know, those are the ones who seem to be the, the primary customer of dominatrices. I mean, I had a few dominatrix friends in New York City, like tiny little women who would get paid lots of money to whip guys and humiliate them. It was typically super, the, the, the giga chads essentially who hired them. Seems weird, but from an arc, you know, from this kind of unconscious drive perspective, they were seeking correction, right? Like a man who's the boss when it comes to everything, a hundred percent of the time, people are worshiping him. He's like truly the king of his reality. If he's not religious, it feels very uncomfortable to be at the very top, right? He wants something to humble him. And if, you know, a lot of men will seek Christianity or Islam or some monotheistic religion for that purpose, but if they don't have God. They then hire a little Asian woman to stomp on them and call them names because at least they can become humble to something. They can experience that humiliation as a correction and it makes them feel better about themselves. And the final piece about this atonement, you know, that goes along with recognizing your place in the chain is coming to terms with the fact that a lot of your traits, a lot of your sense of masculinity came from your primary father, whether you like it or not. Hopefully you've sought mentors and the secondary father experience to fill out the imbalances, but then you have to put them together and refine what you've been given, which means accepting and using the positives that your father gave you and maybe correcting and refining and integrating the things that maybe weren't so great. So one example from one of my coaching clients, um, he's a pro athlete. He, he originally hired me to speak about his marriage stuff, but then we kind of resolved his marriage issues pretty quickly. And we started talking about his career because he's very talented. He's very athletic, but he's, you know, he hasn't achieved what he thinks he should achieve based on how, say, how good he is in practice, essentially. And we're talking about like, what could be, you know, obviously Adam, I'm, I'm not a, I'm not a sports coach, but we were, we were looking into, into that stuff. Um, and he shared that his father was also, a professional athlete in his sport and his father kind of, you know, re reduced his, you know, kind of blew his chances at a career at it because he couldn't control his emotions. Like he would get very angry. Like he would uh, be a little bit too emotional and it would mess up his game. And then, you know, this client of mine, obviously a younger man, he's, you know, he's been playing this sport with his dad for a long time, but he specifically always tried to suppress his emotions in this part of the game or like he, he didn't, he didn't exercise like his passion or he doesn't as much, I think on some level, because he doesn't want to be his dad, right? He doesn't want to be the person who like, you know, has an angry outburst on, on the court. But I was saying like, you're kind of, I mean, this is in you, like this is kind of a superpower your, your father gave you that you haven't integrated that you could use, you could refine it and turn it into something. You know, we, we look at some of the, you know, the biggest athletes, uh, Jordan and, and if you, if you caught the, the last dance, 
it was the last, yeah, the last dance documentary, great nostalgia berries. If you grew up in the nineties, uh, he was kind of a dick, right? He, but he was so passionate, so driven. I was trying to like, see like, how can you integrate this in yourself? So you're not rejecting what your father gave you. You realize the way he did it was wrong, but you can integrate in a way that is useful for you. And, uh, you know, we've been exploring on how to, to integrate that. And I, you know, I recognize in myself that, okay, my, maybe my dad didn't, you know, he, he was lacking in certain areas, right? Maybe he wasn't the most assertive. He, you know, there's certain things, but obviously my secondary father journey has been seeking out these traits to bring them into myself, but also recognizing that my dad gave me a lot of things that are useful. In fact, you know, like my dad was, is, he's still alive. He's, uh, you know, kind of like a, he was a physics professor. He's kind of like that kind of nervous intellectual energy. Here I am having a podcast. I have a career where I talk about things that I find interesting. A lot of the times academic. I definitely got that from my dad. Ironically, the stuff I talk about, I got from my secondary father journey. But, you know, this kind of integration is, is how could I not appreciate that? And it's not about, you know, platitudely, platitudely, I don't know if that's a word, but platitudely, uh, you know, forgiving your father for the sake of it. But if you've gone on your journey, if you've actually separated, if you've done your metaphorical rebellion, sought the secondary father, maybe you've gone through the prodigal son journey of returning home at some point, if you've really done what you have to do, the only thing that is left to feel is forgiveness, right? Like, it's not about forgiveness for, you know, positive, altruistic, moral reasons. It's forgiveness of like, oh, if I can forgive this, this is true for everything regarding forgiveness. If I could really forgive this person I was upset with, then this pain has actually been healed, right? The father wound has been healed. This has been complete. And this is essentially what the king archetype is. And I do believe that to really embody the king, which I define as the archetype of masculinity or the expression of masculinity where you are not necessarily about yourself. You're about providing the perimeter for dependence. You are, you know, essentially protector of the realm, which is what a king traditionally was. In order to do that, you have to make, make peace with the Godhead, which again, represented by your boyhood relationship to your, your father, but <clears throat> it, it's more than that, right? So finally, <clears throat> I have noticed that when, as I've been going through this inquiry, as I've been making peace with this father nature within myself, which has bled out into positive interactions with my literal dad, I've been thinking a lot about my boyhood self. I've been thinking a lot about that nine-year-old boy of myself who felt in a, in a way abandoned by the Godhead, right? Recognizing my dad was mortal, recognizing that he had he was imperfect and had shortcomings and stuff, that father wound. I've been thinking a lot about that, even more than about my dad. Like I've been thinking about the boy in me that felt that initial wound that had to go on a journey to try to complete these things. And it feels, I mean, I hope this doesn't sound corny, but <clears throat> this is genuine. It's like it does feel like a completion of something, right? In the monomyth, the hero's journey represents a psychological experience, which is why it's which is why it is moving to see that that story told in films and whatever, or books or whatever. Um, it represents, I think, it, it, I, mean, <clears throat> I do think the monomyth as we, the hero's journey as we look at it, really is a, a male's hero's journey. You know, I, I won't rant on this, but I, yeah, I'll just leave it at that. The atonement with the father occurs towards the end, before the final battle, before the, the great victory, the apotheosis experience where he's integrated all his superpowers, and then he comes home to peace. And I have felt like, in a sense, 
I've completed a certain journey that started with disappointment as a, a nine-year-old boy. Excuse the noise. Uh, I haven't soundproofed my office here in Mexico. They still uh, advertise like that. So I don't know if you could hear that. So, <clears throat> oh, okay, last point. If you're not religious, if you're, you know, maybe the abstract values of having a code, that, that's not enough. Something a little less abstract and more real, which I was chatting with with Mishka, was seeking the visceral experience of the father. Like what is, you know, you have to, you have to use your uh, poetic muscles a little bit, but what does it mean to really feel the father in you? And this is a lot of what people experience. And when they have spiritual experiences, I think especially with nature, you know, Wim Hof talks about this a lot. Like his teacher is hard nature, right? He goes into the freezing cold and the freezing cold forces him to not think about bullshit, right? I mean, I do think ice is representative of the father archetype or the Godhead even. Because if you've ever gone out into the world and maybe you've ever had an ice bath, you've ever, you know, I, I have this experience when I go hiking and I see a giant mountain where you can't help feeling this sense of awe that there is something much bigger than you and way more powerful than you that will always be there it has a certain comforting feeling, <laughs> the way I think a boy looks at his father, right? In fact, we can say, you know, to flip flip the, the direction of the metaphor, if you will, that one's father or the way one looks at his father when he's a little boy is really the father is standing in as a representation of all of nature, like that sense of awe of like, wow, that thing that's beyond me can do so much more and I can do my best to try to embody it, but I'll never do that, right? Like the, like God the Father in the sky is kind of this asymptote, which you can never really, we can try to, you know, a Christian can try to act as his father does or whatever the Bible says, but you're never going to fully embody it. But there is something to that. And I think as far as like a, a way to live life, maybe to access the, the benefits of a religion without being religious, there is that, right? Putting yourself in real situations where you can't help but be in awe. And I'll say for myself who, you know, I mean, I do live on a mountain, but I don't go hiking maybe as often as would be good for me. I do seek that in working out where like, if I'm feeling shit, there is always a temptation to seek mommy to maybe, you know, get high or drink some beers or veg out or do something comforting. And not to say that that, ne that never is okay or that's never the right move in a certain context. But what really makes me feel good in the sense that I can do more shit and handle more things and uphold my responsibilities to my dependents is something like, you know, doing rounds on the heavy bag until I enter an altered state of consciousness. You know, that endorphin rush, right? Deadlifting until I really feel high of like, oh, what was that bullshit I was worrying about? I don't know. I mean, that to me feels like dad, like dad just smacking you in the head, you know, do some push-ups and they're like, oh yeah, okay. We feel better. So anyways father archetype hope this has been useful yeah i'll just say my announcements this saturday so or excuse me this sunday in three days going through the masculine archetype challenge with a live group so and i've had this program up for many years is one of the things i'm very proud of i want to go through it myself again so basically anyone who signs up before sunday can join the group call the group calls they're added bonus but they're free um it's february 5th in the afternoon american time we're going to do a group call uh, should be a lot of fun. If you don't know, the 21-Day Archetype Challenge is a 21-day set of missions and les lessons that help you get in touch with your testosterone-driven instincts that I would call the mask and archetype. That's at rwando.com slash archetype. Um, and it still comes with a free coaching call with me. 
I'm probably going to live stream every other week, if not every week, um, but an edited version of this video will be up on my YouTube soon. Also, uh, check out my YouTube. If you, I mean, my only subscribers are from more than two years ago because the, the channel's been down, but I will be posting uh, more videos, more short clips, and obviously the video version of all of my podcast episodes. Thanks for listening. Please like, subscribe, do all that fun stuff if you enjoyed this episode. Goodbye. Truth, I dress in a phone booth. I'm in vulnerable. Touch no optimum, say optimum.